It's a bird. It's a plane. It's a magic marker. A, a felt pen. It's a mistake. It's a trap. It's a fucking comedy. It's quiet. Maybe too quiet. It's all happening. It's a good day to die. It's a good day to talk about movies. Welcome back. It is a good day to talk to Travis Malloy. I am your host, Duncan. Joining me as always are Gardner. Hey, hey. Good to be here as always. And Taryn. How we doing? Today we are interviewing filmmaker Travis Malloy. Travis is a writer and director known for his films Infinity Chamber, which he wrote and directed, and Pandorum, which he wrote with director Christian Alvart. We talked extensively to Travis about his work, his writing and directing process, and even what it was like to work with one of our former guests, Christopher Soren Kelly. This was a really terrific interview. Travis gave great answers and insight, and we can't wait for you to hear it. Yeah, uh, talking with Travis was fantastic. I know we had the video feed so we could see all of his energy through his mannerisms, but I'm sure just listening, you're going to be able to hear the love and the joy that he gets out of making movies and his passion for the art form. Yeah, his energy is truly contagious. I was jazzed the entire time we were doing this interview. I loved hearing him talk about his process, what he gets out of making movies, why he loves making movies. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one and learn some stuff too. I know I did. Yeah, I really enjoyed doing this interview and getting the answers that we got from Travis. So I can only hope that our audience enjoys listening to it as well. Before we go any further, a quick spoiler warning for both Pandorum and Infinity Chamber. We are going to pretty much spoil the shit out of both those movies. And they're both movies that have twists and turns going throughout them. So I would say that you don't want either of them spoiled. They're both available on Tubi. Infinity Chamber was available on Amazon. I don't know if it's still available on Amazon. It still is. As of as of this recording, you can go watch Infinity Chamber for free with Amazon Prime. So definitely at least watch that one before it, but why not watch Pandorum as well? They're both great. This is your spoiler warning for both those Pandorum and Infinity Chamber going to be spoiled in this interview. If you don't want them spoiled, turn this off now. Go watch them. Get back to us. For everyone else, that was your spoiler warning. On to the interview. We are joined now by a very special guest. Filmmaker Travis Malloy is here with us today to talk about his movies. Travis, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Of course. So Travis is a writer, director, editor, and I'm sure many other things, who has made feature films, including Infinity Chamber, which he wrote and directed, and Pandorum, which he wrote. We're really excited to learn about his work. But first, Travis, how did I do on that background? Is there anything you want to add to it? Yeah, no, that was uh, that about sums it up. Those two, those two movies are my main main things that I'm known for. But I've just been I've been in the indie world for 20 years. But uh, yeah, that was good, man. That was good. So that's a perfect actually jumping off point for as we start. We like to you know learn a little bit more about yourself and where you are in the industry. So you're saying you've been in the industry for 22 years. That's amazing to hear. Can you kind of give a little bit of details on what what that's looked like for you? Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I came from uh, I'm originally from Chicago, but I grew up in Minnesota and I got into the film industry in Minneapolis back in the 90s, um, which was an interesting time in film. But and I my first real job, I worked for Prince, uh, the musician out at Paisley Park Studios. 
that was kind of like my first thing. He was the only he was the only guy that had anything going on in Minneapolis was Paisley Park. That's where they did everything. So I just kind of banged on the door and, and got hired and worked for him for a while. Um, and that was kind of like my introduction to production because I just worked in every department that I could. Uh, and once I felt uh, enough educated, then I jumped in and then I went and did my first independent film, uh, which was in the mid 90s. Um, and I, it was a, it was a very low budget shoot 'em up action movie. It was a pretty, not a very good movie, but we accomplished what we wanted to do. And I brought that film out to LA and sold it. And then that's kind of how it all started. What was your role on that feature? Were you the writer for that one? Were you on the crew? Yeah, no, I was, uh, I was the writer, director, producer. It was a, it was a, it was about a $200,000 movie. And then we actually shot it on film. If you can imagine that back before the digital uh conversion uh but yeah i just wrote this i look back at it, i was like man i really was really kind of young and naive it was really kind of you know a little bit of a juvenile story but it was just a shoot 'em up little thriller and i used my roommates i cast my roommates and all my friends that i could and did the best we could that actually gives me a good segue into one of the first questions I wanted to ask you, which I didn't know about this feature. So that just adds another element to it. What is the experience like when you write a script and you hand it over to someone else to direct versus directing a script that you yourself wrote? Yeah, that's that's actually a great question because it's a strange beast. I did this little indie film, and then I went out to went out to Hollywood. I got myself an agent. And I started, and I worked for a writer as a writer for years, and it was so I was writing for other people. And it took me, it, it was difficult to detach myself from it, to watch because once you hand it over, you know the blueprint. It's not your movie anymore. Somebody else, some other director uh, is going to do his movie. And at first, when that happened, it was it was. It was a little difficult to, to let go when I would watch a film. Like when I watched Pandorum the first time, I had a really hard time with it just because it was so different than what I envisioned. So anyway, it was definitely there. It was definitely a process to do that. And what I learned is when I was writing for myself, I was writing better. I was I was really I was writing what I believed in, what I wanted to see as a movie. And it was kind of a learning curve in doing that. I mean, to give you guys a, a quick story, I got, when I, when I went to LA and I got an agent, I was writing for Warner Brothers and I was trying to do everything I could to appease certain producers. And none of this stuff was getting produced. And I got a little anxious. I, you know what, I'm gonna write a script that I wanna direct. I wanna get back into the indie world. So I wrote Pandorum as an independent film. And I wrote it knowing no one was gonna read it, that only I was gonna be dealing with the material and i was suddenly a much better writer and i went to go shoot pandorum as an independent film we were going to do it for about two hundred thousand dollars in an abandoned paper mill and we were just about to get shooting when my agent said well stop what you're doing i have somebody bigger that's interested in the project and then that went with constantine impact pictures and christian albert as a director but it was a big light bulb moment that wait a minute why did this one work and it was because I finally could, you know, write something that I believed in as a filmmaker. And now when I get hired as a writer, I do, I kind of mentally put myself in that same place. 
I try, I have to write what I believe in, if that makes any sense. And would you say that that often leads to you being drawn to sci-fi stories because we're in, in the movies that we've seen of your work, it's been, they've had at least a sci-fi element in it. I mean, or if they're not, if not completely sci-fi, but do you see yourself being drawn to a sci-fi type story? Um, somewhat. Yeah. It's, it's weird. I, cause I write in all different genres. It just by circumstance, by that, those were ones that were able to go, you know, uh, cause I, I'd worked on some spy thrillers, suspense thrillers, action thrillers, a lot of those, but just because of circumstance, just because of Hollywood and the machine, they just, just didn't happen to go. So but I, I'm definitely super attracted to sci-fi, but it's not my it's not my only area. It just by circumstance, those project that project happened to go, and it worked for me. So yeah. Do you have a genre in particular that you love to work in, or maybe you haven't worked in and you want to work in in the future? Um, you know the the pretty much every the only the only genre that terrifies me is comedy. Like, it's the only thing I just like, you know, I just, I don't get it that, you know, it's so, it's so difficult and so subjective, but really psychological thrillers. I really work to me. There's really no difference. And I like, I like, I look for a scenario, something interesting that's happening between characters, something that's, that examines human nature and how we get pushed to our limits and, and how our moral compasses are challenged and those kind of things. Whether it's in a an assassin film or a sci-fi film or whatever, whatever, it doesn't really matter to me. It's it's just finding that core story that that I'm attracted to, if that makes any sense. Sorry to jump back a little bit. You mentioned when you were working with the producers and having trouble getting a script made. Are they coming to you and pitching you with an idea and is it that you're not sold on the concept from the jump when you're trying to write something that you're not invested in? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the whole I mean, that's really the Hollywood machine is and that's really tough to navigate. Everybody's I mean, I get I get books. People want to convert books. I have true life stories. People want to convert that into a story, a comic book, a premise, a short story or just a concept. So that's kind of what I that's that's my main thing that I do is dealing with projects, development, trying to find the right ones that really appealed to me. Um, and it took me a while when I was younger, when I first jumped in, I just wanted to, I just wanted to work. Sure. I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll work on anything and try to make it the best that I can. And as time progressed, the, the more years that I've been in the business, I've gotten more selective and a little more honest with, you know what, for me, I don't see a movie in this. This is a great story. This would be a great documentary. This might be a great series, uh, but it's not a movie. But that took a while to, to kind of get to that place because before I was so willing to, sure, absolutely, you name it. I'll, yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll make a movie out of it. So how would you describe your writing process specifically? Because I know everyone has their own kind of way that they go about approaching a story. It sounds like, and this is just me saying this, that for you, it kind of starts with, the characters and the dynamics between the characters. So does the yeah. story grow out from a situation between the characters? Uh, maybe you could just 
I'll shut up and let you speak to that. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. Um, well, every project's different. It depends if I'm if I'm hired to do it or if it's an adaption or whatever. But uh, like when I do my spec scripts and I'm writing my own stuff or I'm writing something that I want to direct, I do something. It's a little bit unorthodox, right? I don't have an outline. I don't have a treatment. I don't break it down. That's like the right way to do things. But I like to dive in and see where it goes and not know the ending, not know where this could go. And it, it's, it's kind of like a, it just makes it a little bit more of an organic experience. The problem with that is nine times out of 10, I'll get stuck and it won't work. And so it'd always be better to have an outline like, oh, okay, here's the open, you know, here's the whole story. Now I just got to go in and create all this. That's a smarter way to work, but I just like to jump into a scenario. Two characters are stuck with this dilemma, and here's this weird moment in the movie. And then I try to build around that, and, and that might end up in the middle of the movie, might end up in the beginning, I don't know. And I just try to and see what happens. And that's why I have hundreds of unfinished scripts in my computer, as you know, as when you guys, if you guys are writers. Uh, I think it's a really cool concept and I got to see if it'll, it'll, if it'll blossom into something bigger, but that's, that's my process. Could you talk about how then, because we've seen some uh, pretty big twists in your scripts, like a twist right. ending or twist middles even. So if you're not writing with the knowledge of what's, how the ending is going to happen yet, like you said, you're right. kind of just tackling it scene by scene, or you don't really have an outline maybe sometimes, how does yeah. that, is that hard then to write a twist into your film? Because I imagine writing a twist to begin with isn't easy. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that, like, well, just both Pandorum and Infinity Chamber start at this, ver at the, at this, this awakening moment. Pandorum was, okay, you wake up on a spaceship, you have no idea how you got here, what this, nobody's around, the power is out, what is it? What happened to it? So I like throw myself into his into that. And that's the reason why I did the memory. That's the only reason why I did the memory loss thing, because I didn't know yet. I didn't I hadn't figured this story out and what this backstory is. So I just started writing and let's see what happens. So I like I know it's like haunting me. I know that I'm going to have to have some kind of reveals, some setups and payoffs and that will provide those twists. But I don't know what that is until I get there, until I start building. And Infinity Chamber was the same way. Waking up in an automated prison, you don't know why you were arrested. How do I get out of this thing? And the only thing I'm talking to is someone through a security camera, and whether it's human or computer or whatever. So it was just, okay, boom, now let's see what happens and, and where can it go? And a lot of the times I'll paint myself in a corner and I have no idea. I have no idea how to satisfy that story and how to create that ending. And that's 90% of the time, but every once in a while, ooh, come across, here's an interesting, here's an interesting twist or an interesting surprise. For Infinity Chamber, was the concept of whether or not the overseer was an AI or a human, was that up in the air when you sat down and were started writing? Um, a little bit. It was, uh, I like the idea of, uh, well, one, just to give you guys a little bit of back backstory in infinity chamber i've been in the business enough and then i wanted to go make a film and i was like all right i want to write something that's really economical what's the easiest thing i can do one room one act i was like well the only way i can do that is if the actor is talking to 
some kind of device, a computer or a camera, intercom or whatever. So it just started with that. And then when I started to build the story about automated prison and all that kind of stuff, then that came in. And then I was like, oh, okay, that's a good, that might be a good moment. We think he, he thinks he's talking to a guard that sounds, somebody that sounds very human. And the first surprise along the way that he's talking to an AI. So that just came with the, in those first few steps uh, of building that. So this might be a perfect time to maybe pivot into a couple questions about Infinity Chamber specifically, if that's all right with sure. you. Sure, absolutely. Awesome. awesome. So you were just talking about the starting point of the idea of the film where you kind of started with one guy, one room, and it was kind of helping with the budget, I guess, right? To, to have such a, such a, a small scale type story. So yeah. was there anything that as you were writing or maybe even as you were making the film that you had to kind of limit yourself due to that budget? Was there any things that, because I feel like we always find out that these creative solutions to budget limitations. So I didn't know if there was anything throughout the film that you were kind of had to find, you know, fun workarounds to. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, well, the other thing too, just a a way to to set that up is, okay, I decided I was going to make a film and I had an idea. I'd started writing the script. I was like, I'm going to keep it simple. One actor, majority of the time talking to an inanimate object. That, then I've got one actor, one room, et cetera. Okay, I can start with that. And I wrote a part, most of the script, I had the idea flushed out. And I talked to Chris Kelly and I told him the idea. He's like, great, let's do it. And he was like the first one that was like, kicked me in the pants. Like, all right, quit talking about it. Let's go make a movie. I was like, all right, great. So I knew that procrastination is so easy in filmmaking, you know, because filmmaking is so tough to do. It's like, ah, next year, when we have a little more money, when this is right, when that is right. So I knew that though. So I was like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to commit. I'm going to buy, I'm going to rent an industrial space in the Valley. It was like 900 bucks a month. I was like, all right, I'm going to rent this place and I'm going to start building this set. I don't know exactly what it's going to be, but I'll figure it out. And I don't have a script yet, but I'll write it. But I knew that if I'd, after renting this place for like three, four months, I'd already spent this money. I'd be a fool not to just, you know, continue and keep making the movie. I was like, I wanted to force my hand to do that. So I got the space and I just started building that set and I was going to salvage yards and I was uh, looking at dumpsters and Home Depot. And I just slowly started putting the set together, which was really cool. While I was writing the script, I was in that space. So basically going on the weekends and all that, it took me about a year to build that set. And I was using anything I could find. I was like experimenting with textures and plastic and glass. And I was trying to think, I, I, I don't want it to look shitty. I want to at least try to have something that has some dynamic to it. So along the way, I discovered certain things like if you, uh, how well you guys remember the movie, but the wall has this light source coming through it. It's like this black shaped wall. Those are soda crates, crates that hold soda bottles. And I found those in the alley next to a grocery store. I was like, oh, it's kind of cool. I could put light through it. Yeah. And it's got a cool pattern. So I started putting those on the wall and I realized, oh, I need like 220 of those things. So I was going around the valley finding as many as I could and then I got caught this manager came out and he said what are you doing I was like oh I was just taking these plastic crates and he's like no the bottling company reuses those that's stealing you can't take those and I couldn't buy them 
I couldn't, so I had to steal 50 more of them. I was like in a hooded, you know, I was like, I got to steal this stuff. I'm sorry, I already started filming the set. I got away with it, made the movie. And then when we finished, I, I took them and I returned them all back to the grocery store where I took them. So some morning, some grocery store manager came out and what the fuck, all these, all these plastic crates stacked up. So anyway, it was interesting building the set while I was working on the script and how, how can I do the door and how can I do the bathroom and how can I make that? look interesting and that ceiling and the lighting and so anyway it was just like this weird exploration while while trying to put that movie together thanks for that answer that was an awesome story (laughs) yeah so i pretty much spent as much as much time in that cell as the character in the movie so that was pretty good (laughs) (laughs) do you have a, a background in visual art as well or was that just something that when you were writing you could just see it in your head and you just went out into the world and found things that were an extension of that yeah no I just kind of improvised I was just trying to do the best that I could it it was interesting because I had friends come in it was like stone soup people would come in and like what are you doing you know and some were designers some were production designers uh prop guys grips so everybody kind of came and put their two cents in to, to help it improve and give it some depth and give it some texture. But myself, uh, and I'm honestly not that great of a carpenter. So it was, uh, by the time I was done building that set, it was just this behemoth. I mean, it was this monster thing all patched and drilled together from every direction. It, it, was, it was quite a mess, actually. Well, that leads into a question I had, which was, what was the most difficult part of pre-production on Infinity Chamber? And maybe same for post-production. It sounds to me like that set design might have been pretty difficult. Yeah, it was building the set. It was trying to make it big enough. I, I, I would, the one foolish thing that I did was they weren't uh, flyaway walls. You had to go in through the door and film everything from inside. And I was a little, one, I didn't want it to collapse. I, I didn't want it. I, I wanted it sturdy. So nobody would get hurt. And the ceiling was kind of heavy. So I was like, there's no flyaway walls. The whole thing is solid. And my DP, when he showed up, he was like, what? Like, we can't, we can't, we've got no room to move. Like, we have to be in the cell with them. And I was like, yeah, that's just, that's just the way we're going to have to do it. But yeah, the construction of the set was uh, definitely the biggest obstacle or the biggest challenge. Well, the one, I mean, just one thing that the biggest challenge to me uh, uh, for Infinity Chamber was how to not how not how not to make a boring movie how uh, one guy alone in the in in a room you know 80 percent of the time like how how is this not how can i keep this alive how can i let it breathe so the concept of him having the flashbacks and and reliving and that was also an economical decision he wakes up in the morning he goes through his routine he goes to the coffee shop he talks to da 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 I was like, well, if this is a flashback and we're and we're we're manipulating it, I'll get a lot of bang for my buck because I him waking up and I'm, I'm going to use that over and over and over. So anyway, to expand the story and let it breathe and get us out of that room and get some more life into the story. That's that was my that was my story challenge. How to do that? Because you know, if the movie would have stayed in the cell the entire time, I 
I, I don't think it would have worked. I mean, certain people have accomplished it with with uh, self-contained movies like that, but it's just super difficult, you know, how to keep the how to keep the audience interested, uh, especially one guy by himself. Did that objective also play into how you landed on the personality of the AI? Because I feel like it's jovial nature and kind of playfulness is is huge for me as the viewer did you have any other ideas that you kicked around yeah absolutely that and absolutely a great question because i knew that this was the second half of this uh, of this movie this character so i really took into consideration all the ones we've seen before i mean looking at how in 2001 who i think is the marlon brando of ai performances you know so i toyed with the idea of what he sounded like, how human he sounded, um, how robotic he sounded. And actually that was, a, that was mostly in post-production. It was really trying to, the inflection. And I, I listened to a hundred different voice actors. I didn't know who was going to be the voice of Howard and how formal and how robotic it would sound. So I, I tried to find a nice balance. I thought he should have personality and it wasn't it wasn't too robotic. It had a little bit of personality, but there was some type of hollowness or some type of, you know, lifeless presence behind the voice. So anyway, it was trying to find a void. But then the interesting part was uh, Jesse Arrow, the actor who provided the voice. I didn't know he was going to be the voice. He was he was a friend of Chris Kelly's and he would come and just do Howard's voice off camera. So Chris would have somebody to react to. So I was editing the movie with Jesse's voice because I could hear him in the takes. And then I was looking for a voice actor and I'd listen to all these different actors, men, women, all that. And then I just, it was like right in front of me. I was like, Jesse's voice just sounds right to me, the way he delivers uh, his inflection. So it was a, a search to find that, but it was tough. And I, you know, I was like, it was my, like certain scenes, even while editing, if he sounded too personable it kind of fell apart didn't seem didn't seem right and if he was too robotic it, it was it was a balancing act with that so what was it like directing just chris kelly on set when you had jesse kind of standing off to the side well it was actually it was chris made my my life really easy the reason why i thought the movie would work is because chris is such an interesting guy he's an interesting guy to watch do nothing like you know i just think he has he has that thing about him and i was like okay when i i knew i i needed to find somebody like that who was gonna who was basically gonna carry the whole movie on their shoulders so chris was so easy and he gave me so many it was great because he would give me so many different varieties like just him go, getting up going sit in the chair say a few lines and then he would give me all these variations of it so he was a he was a dream to work with he was, he was really fantastic. Did you run into any issues while you were directing? I know you talked about some of the kind of str like struggles of trying to make sure it's an interesting script while you're writing it and focusing on that and what the hardest parts of pre-production and post-production were. But when you're actually shooting it, was there anything that was challenging for you? I know you said you had the restraints of the actual physical room itself, which was kind right. of, that, that made it harder on your DOP, I believe you said. So yeah. So was there anything for you as you're directing it that you're kind of noticing is one of the more challenging parts of it for this film? 
You know, well, see, well, here's another thing about and just about, uh, about writing is sometimes sometimes you don't really know what your theme is, and I think it's okay. And people, a lot of people want to want to understand what this movie is saying, what this movie is really about under the surface and all that. And I, I don't think that's true. I think sometimes you don't know your theme. And I didn't know going into this. I it was an escape movie. It was a guy trying to get out of a room. That was it. And there's the computer controlling the door. But as we were making the movie, then certain things watching watching Chris interact with the camera, then all of a sudden these other things started to come to the surface about disconnection with between humans and our our relationships with technology our attachments to our devices and how our communications are filtered through technology. So like all these other little things kind of started bubbling to the surface. So we actually, I kind of found my way through the story while we were making it, watching, having those observations, like that's really interesting. It being cut off from other humans and his only relationships in the movie are with two basically artificial characters because Gabby is a figment of his imagination and his memory and Howard is an AI computer. So he doesn't really have a real relationship with anyone until Fletcher comes in um, speaking through the vent. So it was about, to me, it was about artificial relationships. And that was something that we discovered along the way while we were making it. But the difficulty for me was gauging that, like how much of this do I chase after? How much of this should we build up? or how much should we just stick in the genre that this is an escape movie? How much time should we spend on those, those portions of the story and how much should we dive into the emotional, those other elements? So anyway, that was, that was the challenge for me while making it. Were there heavy rewrites as you were moving through your script? Like not discovering, really. like not heavy rewrites in the sense of changing, but like adjusting the direction you were headed as you were kind of discovering things that the movie was showing you as you were making it no not really not really the only big the only thing that changed was originally gabby the the barista in the coffee shop was a villain that in the end we reveal that she's part of this that she's part of the ai part of the simulation she's trying to get the information out of them but and while we were filming i was like oh, you know i think that's just one too many twists and i don't think the story needed that type of villain i like the fact that the villain is ambiguous that it's the system that it's the ISN, it's this faceless thing and i was like i think i'd like her to be his ally all the way to the end i think that's just i think that's more interesting so that was the only change because i had a scene where we reveal her to be the villain that he catches her in a lie and he turns against her and etc cetera, etc cetera. and that was the only, i was like nah i don't think we need that i think we can just keep it simple um, but the biggest, honestly, the biggest changes story-wise or script-wise were in editing, in post-production. When I finished the film and I edited the film to the script, it didn't work. There was something, there was a pacing problem. So then I restructured the story. Uh, originally, it opened differently. It took a longer time to get to that place where he wakes up in the cell. I had this big, uh, a big introduction, but I chopped that up and I moved it and made it flashbacks and so it was restructuring the first 45 minutes of that movie that made it so different from the script so honestly that was kind of the rewrite was the edit 
Well, I'm fascinated to hear you talk about how you kind of learned what the film was about or like or you learned about the themes while it was being made. And right. I'm curious because audiences have their own experience with the film when they're watching it, what they interpret it being about. I'm curious if you have a particularly favorite fan theory maybe about the film, because obviously a lot of people kind of interpret the ending in their own ways. I'm curious right. if there's anything that, that you're drawn to. I'd be fascinated. There were some really interesting, really great theories that came from fans, that and ones that I'd never, that, that I didn't even imagine. I was like, man, that's awesome. This one guy, he gave me this very detailed analysis and explanation that Frank was actually the old man on life support. And this was this entire movie was in his mind while he was in a coma, trying to detach himself from a machine that was keeping him alive when he didn't want to be kept alive anymore. And he had all these he's like all the clues. Look at this the thing on the wall, this and that. I was like, wow, that's I was like, that's fantastic. Uh, that's it then. OK, if that's what it is for you, that's that, that works for me. And that and I'll tell you, that's been that that's been the, the best part of this movie is getting the reaction from it and talking to fans, that, having those discussions about what they interpret, how they took the ending. Because I really built the movie to have two different interpretations. I, I, I wanted to try to subtly present enough evidence that either one could be true. That him getting out and that, that the government had fallen and that he finally did escape and he found her even though she was only a piece of his his memory so now it's like a new relationship starting over and then the other one is that he never really left the cell and that the computer was basically tricking him to try to get him to show him where that hard drive was and in the end he accepted it he accepted his fate and he was rewarded by handing over the hard drive he was rewarded that life with her in his mind still back in the cell so i i really tried to provide enough evidence that you could that the audience could make up their own minds uh, how they wanted to accept that ending so when you're watching it have you made up your mind on how you view the ending yeah absolutely absolutely yeah <laughs> but, <laughs> but we might never get that interpretation out of you <laughs> um actually well we're working on a we have a sequel actually that will answer a few more of those questions so we, we have that in the works it's not, it's not a direct sequel, but it's a story that takes place in that same universe that deals with the ISN, with these underground facilities, et cetera, et cetera. It's actually somebody trying to break into the facility versus someone trying to break out of one. So it's kind of the reverse, but it's dealing with an, with an AI system that refuses entry. So it's, it's another, uh, it could be a really fun project if it, if it ever comes to be. But that, that would answer some of those questions as well. You've got me really excited already. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it could be a fun project. I know we'll want to ask um, later on in the interview, we're, we're going to try to ask you if you're working on anything else. So we'll, we'll save to see if there's uh, other projects that you want to tell us about for the end of the um, interview. I did want sure. to, if possible, I know we're jumping a little bit around on Infinity Chamber here, but... I wanted to ask a little bit about the sound because we were talking about you being the editor. We were talking about finding the voice for Howard, 
which I think is was really important and really, I mean, you were talking about trying to find that balance. I think you found it perfectly between being an AI and being not too friendly of a human um, and not too robotic. I think you really did find a good balance there. But I was wondering yeah. about the sound design of it as you're editing it, because, you know, there's scenes where when his when he's breaking down and you can hear it in his voice and that's how you're being told that he's breaking down or like there's things that you're really learning about their important details of the film that I think are coming through in the sound and the sound design. And so I was just wondering about the editing process, especially when it came to the voice of Howard. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, that, that's like one of my favorite parts of the whole process. The sound design and, I mean, doing the score with Jacob Yaffe, and I did the sound design with uh, Mike Cramp. That was like probably one of my favorite parts of the whole production because it's amazing what you can do with that stuff and how you can you can alter the emotion of a scene or how you can, you know, how you, it, 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 I just find it fascinating. So like a lot of things that we experimented with, not only finding the voice of Howard, but also, I don't know if you get the, the one thing that I hit in the movie, like I said before, that his relationship with Howard and his relationship with Gabby are very similar. These are two characters that are essentially trying to help him achieve his goal. And they have, the exact same lines of dialogue. They speak very similar. There's a lot of their responses that are identical. The way that they answer his question, uh, the way they respond. So I thought it'd be interesting. I took Cassandra's voice and Jesse's voice, and I started blending them towards the end. So as the story got more or got closer and closer to the end, there are lines that Howard does that has her voice embedded in it. And there's there's portions of it where she's speaking and I have Jesse's voice as like a, an underbed under her voice. So I was trying to mix their voices and have it go in and out. But there's a few lines where it's really clear. It's really subtle, especially when he's breaking down. I took Cassandra's lines and I mixed them in there. So anyway, that was and it's fun. It was so much fun to play with because you can you can you can fuck it up, too. You know, you can if you get too cute, and you get too obvious about certain things. But trying to be very subtle about it was so much fun and we'd mix it and then we'd listen to it. And then we're like, yeah, that's, a, that's a little, we're being a little too cute there. So let's pull back a little bit and let's just, and try to try to hide it in the subtext. So anyway, I don't know if that is your question, but. Yeah, absolutely. That was very interesting. I'm really, I, I was kind of blown away when you were saying that about mixing the voices together. I was kind of just like, my brain was lighting up. I, I'm going to have to rewatch and see if I can catch those, those lines because I was like, I, I'm surprised because I was so focused on the sound at certain points, especially on my rewatch where I was really, oh, I was really like paying attention. And like you were said, like the, um, the music by Jacob Yaffe was another, oh. another aspect that just, it really, it's something that can bring you, your film up to just a ramp set up to another level. And it's something we love talking about here on GDT podcast is music oh. and sound in, in films. That's really, really where it works. Oh man. I I, I, it's, I think I mean, it, it's 50% of the movie. I mean, it's to, to me, um, score and sound design can make or break the movie. It really can. And we were so lucky to get Jacob. He was way too qualified for what we were, you know? Um, and he agreed to do this project and he brought, I just thought he, oh my God, he just brought a, a million dollar score to a, to a bottom basement budget movie, you know, 
So yeah, and I gave him very little notes. The only it was interesting. The only the only note I had to push him on was he held back. He was he was doing these big emotion like the, these moments, but he was he was pulling back and he was saying like, yeah, I don't want to go too big there. And I was like, why not? He goes, well, I don't know. And I was like, dude, you know what do we got to lose? And he was like, yeah, you're right, you're right. So some of those big moments, uh, yeah. And this score, I really don't think people realize how powerful that is. I think there's it's such a weird thing, but there are I think there's there's bad movies that could be improved with score and sound design. It's just uh, I can't stress how powerful of an element that is. To me, it directs it commands the emotion of the movie. And when deciding not to have music can be extremely powerful, even more so. And I actually tried to do that a lot. But you got to be a really good filmmaker (laughs) for that to work. You know, it's so easy to try to push push the emotion with a little bit of music, a little bit of score or whatever. But I was trying to be a minimalist as much as I could. But Jacob's music was just so fantastic. I'll give you one. The only we, we didn't have any money. And I wanted originally for the montage, there's a montage sequence and I wanted uh, a song. There were some songs that I wanted to put in there, but we just couldn't afford them. But there was one song I was really going after. I was like, maybe I could get a little more money. We could just have one song. And I was telling this to Jacob and Jacob said, well, let me take a shot at it. Let me just try to make some music for that section. And I was like, yeah, sure. And then what he came up with, I was like, oh man, that's, that's even better than that's even better than the music that I that any any music I could put in there. So it was a fun, it was a great experience. So to kind of branch off of that and talk about these scenes where we're focusing on the sound, or whether it's the sounds of the prison or the sounds of that we're hearing, like the music, there are good portions of the film where there's little to no dialogue. For example, when he's breaking out at the end, there's a, there's good portions of very little dialogue. So I was yeah. always I was wondering. I always get curious about scenes like that when you're writing the script, because right. it's like for me, I it I I don't know how people write good scripts to begin with. You know what I mean when it's when it involves dialogue. But then when you break it down and you're now you're just you're writing just actions and just the feeling even of of what you're supposed to be getting out of the scene. I don't you know, I'm, I'm always kind of blown away by that. I was wondering if you could speak to writing a scene like that. Hmm. Boy, I don't know. That's a good. That's a yeah. I mean, j- to tell and see to me, that's a challenge just just on any project as a writer to tell a story visually is tough because. In the Hollywood machine, dialogue drives most movies. Just when somebody, like, you know, when you read a script, descriptives, yeah, whatever, oh, that's poetic, that's beautiful, whatever, whatever. But the, what informs me the most is what people are saying for me to understand what's going on. So it's hard to write great action, interesting action. So I've tried to copy from the best. I mean, there's certain writers that just do it where they they make the point with the fewest amount of words. Like there's some writers where it's a, it's a whole page of, like you say, the guy breaking out of a prison and going to this and this and this and this. And it's just one line here, one line, very simple, not a whole big fat paragraph because people get bored when there's all this descriptive. And that's, I think one of the biggest mistakes new writers make is they fill up these huge paragraphs of descriptives. And I always tell people, 
uh, younger writers that I'm working with, I'm like, keep that as simple as possible, as quickly as possible. If you can describe and I get the sense of the place, the room, I can smell it in one sentence, you've done your job and keep it simple. But that's, that, that, that's definitely a tough thing to do. Thank you. Hey. To kind of go off talking about script writing in particular, if you guys don't, I mean, if you guys have any more questions about Infinity Chamber you want to ask, go ahead. I want to ask you about Pandorum because I saw on Wikipedia that Pandorum was the result of merging two scripts together. And I wanted to yeah. ask you if that was the case. And if so, what was rewarding, challenging, frustrating, new, confusing about that process in particular? Um, yeah, no, that was a that was a really interesting one. I my script when I, I went out, I, I wrote the script and I, I like I said, like I told you guys before, this is a script I wasn't going to give to my agent or producers. Nobody was going to read it. And I was going to go shoot this movie with my roommates. I tried to write the scariest, most disturbing film I could. And so the original script was really brutal. It was really harsh. It was the the spaceship was a prisoner ship. It was carrying 50,000 of the world's worst people. So him running around the ship with all these prisoners, it was like Escape from New York in space. It was like, and there were brutal stuff, gang rapes and cannibalism. And I wrote, I put every, the nastiest thing I could in the script. So I was surprised when, when Constantine and Impact Pictures was actually interested because I was like, there's no way you could do this movie on a bigger budget because it's so dark and it's so brutal and horrific. And that's their idea. Like, listen, we want this to be a little bit friendlier. We want the script to appeal to a bigger crowd. And Christian Albert had been writing a script that was very similar. The, the opening sequence, guy waking up, and he just couldn't believe it. He told me he fell out of his chair when he started reading the script. It's like, it's the same script, but mine went in a very dark direction. His went in a much lighter about colonization, people trying to get to a new planet, whatever. So when we sat down and said, let's, let's, let's bring these two elements together. Let's take what you have and then let me, let's just add a, a lighter color to this whole thing. It was a great experience. I, I really enjoyed working on Christian. And he did make the film more, I don't know what's the right word, more where more people would enjoy that movie. Because <laughs> what I had was, you know, uh, a very a very small group that would find this really really entertaining. So, but it was it was a great experience uh, going through that with them. It was great. I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, oh, it does. That's fantastic. I, I am uh, curious though because I know that uh, he's he's based out of Germany, right? So, yeah. what was that? Was that phone calls, Skype calls? Did you guys meet in person? What did that look like? Yeah, no, we met. He came to LA. And we sat in the office and we, we jammed ideas, we brainstormed and uh, we just paced the room, figuring out ways that we could do it. Like one of the biggest changes, my original script was very obscure. Bauer woke up alone and there was no dialogue for the first half hour of the movie. It was him by himself with a flashlight. There was no other, nobody else in that compartment. And the first guy he meets doesn't speak English. So it was very Robinson Crusoe in space. It was a very loner, empty type story. 
but to make it more commercial we needed we needed that other character we needed to bring we needed to open it up differently but still have that sense of isolation and, and claustrophobia and all that kind of stuff so that was what me and christian had to figure out was okay we have another crew member there's two guys but how do we get bauer by himself well we have him on radios he's going to send one one of them is going to get sent out to try to figure this out while we unravel the mystery of the other guy that woke up so that was that was a great experience how how to figure that out how to keep the elements of the original where one guy by himself trying to find his way through the ship but then have this secondary story element with the dennis quaid character and how to make that work so you know we did we did the best we could to try to make it uh engaging and intriguing and I think, you know, honestly, I think there's there's still mistakes that we made as storytellers, but I think that we did, you know, we did the best that we could. And in that original story that you were writing, and maybe even in the combined story that ended up being the final product, were there stories that influenced you in, and maybe other movies that influenced you in writing the script? I know you said with Infinity Chamber, Hal was obviously, you know, an influence on Howard. Was there anything, I know that we were talking about it before we started recording uh, amongst us on GDT podcast here. We said that Alien was something that we got um, like Alien vibes from it. So we weren't sure if maybe you got influenced by, you know, Alien, any other, any other films? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a kid of 80s movies. So everything from John Carpenter to Ridley Scott, Alien, Escape from New York, I mean, there's just there's, to me, there's, it's just like this whole mix of, you know, 50 movies, little elements coming from from all of those. And that, I think it's just unavoidable. I mean, as a writer, as a filmmaker, we can't help but we're inspired or to play homage by the films that that we grew up with or that we think we, that, that are great. It's a tough line to walk because you st- whether you get into, OK, you're just copying that story. Well, of course, but everybody runs into that, um, no matter what level you are. Every every great filmmaker is playing homage or inspired by other stories and by other films. So trying to keep that balance of making it your own or you're telling this story that we've seen before, but you're putting a little bit of an interesting twist on it or a different angle or a different perspective of that story. I think that's that's the real trick. Yeah, well, personally, I definitely think that you find a great way of making it original. And I also agree that some of the most interesting films and filmmakers are ones that do kind of draw from the past. I think that's a very interesting way to to make a good film, as long as, like you said, it's coming across in its own unique way, which you do. So. Oh, well, thanks. No, I appreciate it. And and yeah. And there's there's people that really do it wonderfully, too, as well. So, um yeah no but i appreciate it thanks man i'd love to know more about your original script if you can divulge any info on that i love the uh, speaking on what we were just saying i love the trope of the generational spaceship traveling right like because there's always something that can go wrong and yeah just out of curiosity what was the storyline like for that prisoner ship was there like were they going to settle as well or what what was they were (laughs) yeah no it was it was pretty brutal. It was uh yeah, it was just it was basically cargo. It was carrying all of these all of the world's worst people off to some distant barren planet that had 
It was basically a planet that was a prison. They just put them on there and figure it out and see if you survive. Like just get rid of these people. And see, now that was that was that was a tough thing for me in converting with Christian story, was because I really wanted Bauer to feel completely alone. That Nadia and Man and everybody that he encountered were were convicts. And that's why he didn't work. He didn't want to work with anybody. He didn't trust anybody. Everyone he encountered was a villain already in his mind were convicts. So when we changed it, and then those are passengers, those are technicians, those are farmers, those are that I was like, well, then he'd trust them. Then you think he'd team up with them. So it was a, it was difficult to try to figure out, well, why isn't he working with these guys? And and it was like, well, because of the chaos of what's going on, he doesn't understand what's going on. And there's a group of them that are running around killing everybody. So he can't trust anybody. But it was trying to find that. The original, I'm just trying, I'm just thinking back. It's been, it's so, it's, 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 it's interesting. It's hard for me to think about. It's be, before Christian got involved, you know, <laughs> to, I, to remember exactly how that story unfolded. I don't, the, the one, the one thing that I'll tell you is like, like this time I was like, all right, I'm not going to do an outline. I don't know where this is going. One guy wakes up, let's see what happens. And I knew that I made it all the way through the story until they got to the, to the bridge and looked out the window. And I really didn't know where they were going to be. And I literally, it sounds corny, but I was like, literally in the middle of that sentence that Nadia wipes away moisture off the glass and looks out through the cockpit. And I like stopped typing. I was like, huh. I don't know. They could be in deep space. They could be in a Walmart parking lot. They could be anywhere. You know, what is the, so I took my dog for a walk and it was at night and I walked down the street and I was like, literally looking up at the, at the stars, thinking about that. Like maybe the ship's in a spin. They've been in this tremendous spin the whole time. And it's, or, and my dog was drinking out of a puddle. And I was like, wow, that's about as opposite as that gets. I could have the ship underwater. They've already reached the, they've already reached the planet, but they've crashed and they're underwater. And I was like, that's cool. So I ran home and then finished that sentence and then finished the script. And I was like, but does that make sense with everything else that we've done? And luckily it did line up because we never saw outside the spaceship, the entire story. So just by chance uh, that ending worked, but it was a cool experience writing it, not knowing what that ending was. Yeah. And also just to give you a, a story, originally it was just the two of them that made it. They popped up out of the water. It was a very Adam and Eve type. Here's a whole new planet. You're the only two that are here. And that was the original ending. And they did a test screening with that. And they got, well, for whatever reason, they had low scores on the ending. Americans didn't like, it was a darker ending because Dennis Quaid was still alive and he was going to take his throne as kingdom over this ship with all these with all these people but bauer nadia made it off and it was a dark ending americans didn't like it europeans loved it they looked at the test scores and i remember uh, jeremy bolt the producer came to me he said we have to do something different with the ending but we don't want to spend a lot of money is there a way we can change that ending and he and i were waiting to get on a plane and i was like well you could launch all the pods you could have all the people come up and I'll never forget. He was like, ah, it's a stupid fucking idea. And I was like, okay. And then uh, about three weeks later, he called me and said, I think that's a good idea. I think that's what we'll do. Because we don't have to reshoot anything. We can just add the rest of those pods coming up to the surface. So. <laughs>
That's funny. That's another just great like behind the scenes story that you've given us. I definitely appreciate all those like little tidbits of like how you come up with stuff. Like it's very, <laughs> really super interesting. So I appreciate the the answers on that front. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. guys. Yeah, you answered a couple of uh, follow up questions. I was I was gonna ask <laughs> right there. I was gonna be like, how you come up with the ending? Da, 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 da. Oh. Answered, answered, answered. Uh, but I do I do want to ask you about like the visual language of that film and how that how that contrasts to what you had in your mind when you were writing it um particularly like about the monsters i think we kind of said a couple times they reminded us of like the orcs in lord of the rings um oh sure what what maybe was was different in your mind about the aesthetics when you were writing it versus what you see in the final product you know to be honest uh mine uh, the original, my, the, the thought I had was that we didn't know what they were. I thought it'd be more frightening or more interesting if he thought they were human. They, they thought they were people, but they'd gone tribal and they were running around with war paint spears and they were viciously killing and eating people. Like, well, how did this happen? Why do we have these people on the ship doing this? So in my eyes, we didn't know that until much later into the story when they were confronted by one and they actually had to fight it that, wait a minute, this thing is not human. Something else has happened. Something else has evolved. Something else has gotten into the ship. So I was a little taken back by the creature route, the visuals that were done with the creatures in the first 20 minutes, first half hour of the film. I thought that that should have been something that should have been hidden more in the shadows and more of a psychological thing. So that was Christian that brought that to the forefront that no, we gotta, we gotta show, we gotta show him right out of the gate. This is what he's dealing with and it's not human. If that makes sense. But the, the, the one thing, I mean, it was amazing the work that they put into that movie because there was very little CGI, the, the, the makeup and the characters that all played those hunters and the physical things that they did they did as much practical stuff as they possibly could. It was, it was, I, it was really impressive. So I, I don't think the, the film gets, for me, it doesn't get enough credit for what they actually did practically. Because I think a lot of people watch it, they, they just assume, oh, that's, that's CGI enhanced. There's, they did this, they did that, which they do so easily now. But when they shot that movie, it was, uh, they did it the hard way. I agree. I thought it looked fantastic. And I loved like, additional little touches here and there, like having the kind of analog crank to get the uh, displays oh, oh. going and stuff like that. Like it, it made it feel unique compared to other stories that take place on like a ship in space. It gave it its own identity. Oh, gotcha. Oh, well, thanks, man. No, I appreciate it. Yeah. And everything, obviously it looks very realistic because of that i think i think that we've talked on this podcast a lot in the past about how practical effects are always a, a better route in our opinion to go when possible and i think it's it gives your your film a longer lasting effect as well especially when cgi is something that's so rapidly you know increasing um all the time so yeah when you're you're picturing this as this lower budget film originally that you're going to write. And then you get the call that it's going to be turned into merged with this other script and turned into a bigger budget film. And when you find all this out and then, you know, you find out that 
Dennis Quaid is going to be starring in it. What is that like as compared to, because obviously this is a little bit different than the, your, your filmography beforehand, just because you were been either making it for yourself or, you know, lower budget things I think were, were being, were being made. Right. So what, what's it like to like, I, I don't know, feel like, Oh, they're pumping a lot of money into this project. Is that, does that put a weight on your shoulders or is it just all very exciting? No, it was, it was mind blowing. I mean, it was, especially from where I came from, I came from very dirty guerrilla style filmmaking. I mean, we found like, we found this location where we were going to film it. It was this abandoned paper mill in Minnesota and all these, you know, it was just, and it was just me and three other guys and we were just going to shoot this thing. So we had it all mapped out and we were doing test shots when the call came and said, Whoa, stop what you're doing. So I had that movie in my mind, that visual stuff, you know, gritty, cheap, whatever. And then when Costine got involved in Impact, we went to the Babelsberg Studios in Germany, um, which is one of the oldest film backlot, film studios in the world. And it was mind blowing. I couldn't believe the size of the sets that they built and how many technicians, how many people they had working on that thing, making all of those the, the suits and they came up with their own fonts and I mean, everything it was, it was, it, I was blown away and going from me and three guys in some dirty old warehouse to 800 technicians on this mat on these massive sound stages. And they shot in, a, in an actual nuclear power plant. I mean, it was, yeah, it was, it was surreal. It was absolutely surreal. It was amazing. But yeah, I'll tell you guys one funny story. When we were filming um, Dennis Quaid, this is like this is the most surreal thing for a writer, because when you write a script and how difficult it is for that script to come to the screen and then to see to see your words done by actors on the screen. It's usually years later. You know, it, that's a pretty surreal thing. But to, one one experience was I was sitting on the on the set when they were filming Dennis Quaid scenes and there was one section that he didn't like. There was something about the dialogue. He was like, he's like, this feels clunky. I, I don't get this. And he was saying this to Christian. And Christian said, Travis, can you, t you know, why don't you guys work it out? I was like, yeah, wh what is it? And he goes, well, I don't like the way it's, I don't like the way these sentence, this the way it's structured, this paragraph part. I was like, no, no, okay, I got you. So I had like a notebook and I was like, so you want me to change the way that, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So I just like, as quickly as I could, the whole crew's waiting. I like wrote him a new line of dialogue and I gave it to him. He was like, yeah, that's great. Let's do that. And they shot it and then they moved on and that that's in the movie, but it was so weird. Like, like I pulled that out of my ass at the last minute with all these angry German crew members waiting for us to figure this fucking line of dialogue out. So anyway, that was a very surreal experience right off the notebook into Dennis Quaid and into the movie. It was pretty wild. <laughs> That's amazing. That's a crazy story. Yeah, it doesn't get any more surreal for a screenwriter than that, than handing a guy a line right there on the moment and it, make, and it makes it in the movie. So. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. We have a couple wrap-up questions, but before I do that, I just want to make sure that Gardner and Tarn, you don't have any last-minute Pandorum questions. I don't want to move on no, too fast go ahead and, and jump into those fine by me awesome so first we just we i know you've said that you teased infinity chamber 2 which or maybe not infinity chamber 2 maybe it's not called that i don't know what, what you guys are thinking on the title of it but something in the same universe as infinity chamber 
um, potentially yeah. coming down the line in the future. Is there any other yeah. projects that you're um, working on that you'd like to talk about now? If not, you know, if, if they're a hush hush, it's fine too. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a pretty crazy. I write, I write two, three projects at a time. That's just the way I do it. Cause I, so I don't get bored, you know, get too bored. So I've got a handful of projects. Most of them are sci-fi, couple suspense thrillers that all deal with it's interesting after going through with the covid the the studios are looking for very self-contained thrillers stuff that's more covid friendly that they can shoot with a lower number of actors lower number of locations there was definitely a big push during 2020 looking for scripts like that so it was interesting because my career took off a little bit because of that i've been writing very self-contained thrillers like infinity chamber i've I have three or four other scripts that are very like two, three actors, one or two very you know isolated locations. I just enjoy that challenge as a writer. I like to, okay, here's all you get. You get two people and you get this location. Try to come up with something interesting with that. So I've been writing a lot of that. There, the one project that I can tell you about um, is with Amazon, a uh, project called Sid. Uh, and they have two great British directors attached to it. And uh, I think they're hopefully they'll be going into production sometime soon. But it's a uh, and the story, they it was in the trades, but they, they're keeping the story under wraps right now. But anyway, that's just one I'm really excited about. Hopefully that'll be going in production soon. And then I've got uh, this uh, this one called Echo Zero Run, which is it's kind of a sequel to uh, to Infinity Chamber tells a different story, but in the same universe. So those are the main two things I'm working on. Awesome. I'm excited for both those. Uh, so Echo Zero One, you said, right? That's the... Yeah. Okay, yeah. That's ex Echo, I'm excited. Echo Zero Run, it's a, it's a, it's a young woman who survived the, the apocalypse. It's a post-apocalyptic story. And she's out in the desert trying to find the entrance to this mythical underground city that the elite built, knowing the end of the world might be coming, they built this massive underground facility where the, the most wealthiest, most powerful people in the world could live safely for years. And her father was military and he told her about this mythical place in the desert. So it opens up on this young woman who is now this post-apocalyptic gunslinger uh, trying to find the entrance to this facility. And what she comes across is a man standing out in the desert like a statue, all covered windblown sand. And he's a robot soldier that was guarding the entrance to the facility. And she literally turns him back on. He shut down during the EMPs when the world came to an end 15 years earlier and realizes that he's blind because he looked up at the sky and the nukes burnt his sensors out. So we have a blind robotic soldier who's refusing to tell her where the entrance is and is refusing to allow her entry into this facility. So she's got to outsmart this guy in order to get into the facility and see if there are still people living there, if there's a, a, a life for her in this underground city. That's the story. So awesome. I'm really excited about that one. Me too. Um, so up our alley. Yeah, it's uh, really just just super excited over here to to, to hear about that. <laughs> Cannot wait for that to come out. I do want to ask you our final question that we like to ask all of our guests, sure. which is, is there an independent filmmaker that you think we should check out their work? 
someone that maybe your audience may not know, maybe we've never heard of, or just someone that you think is putting out great work that we should check out? Yeah, absolutely. A guy named Mike Hurst. And, but the thing is he's making his film right now. I think he's just finishing his in post, but he's one of the best writers uh, that I've ever met. Um, and he writes really interesting, cool stuff. So anyway, if you guys want to, he's just finishing a film right now. It's one of the most fascinating scripts I've ever read. You guys want to interview him and talk to him or whatever. I don't, there's nothing you can watch of his right now, but he's definitely going to be, he's going to make a mark in the industry for sure. And I can introduce you guys to him. Uh, that would be amazing. Time. That would be awesome. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Absolutely. And I'll, and I'll just think about, I mean, like Chris Kelly was the other guy I was thinking about. I, I know so, the, the, the sad thing is I know so many people that are right at that verge of, they have their project. They're trying to get money. They're trying to get that movie made. We all know how extremely difficult that is. So a million great writers, great filmmakers, but having a feature, somebody that's already shot a feature, those are, it's, uh, you know, are kind of hard to find, honestly. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah. Well, I don't want to, I want to make sure that you guys don't have any, any questions that I didn't skip over. I just want to say, you know, appreciate your time. Appreciate that recommendation. Uh, we're definitely going to reach out to him and see if we can have him on. And um, yeah. yeah, we'll, we'll be, uh, we'll be looking out for, for Sid and all the other future projects coming up and who knows, maybe in the future, something comes out, we have you back on. We would absolutely love that. Absolutely. So seriously, thank you so much for joining us today, Travis. I, I know we all yeah. had a blast. I, I don't like to speak for my co-hosts here, but I can very confidently say that all three of us super enjoyed this. It was, it's been amazing. And uh, I know I can't wait to share it with our listeners as well. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I, I was a pleasure. It was great talking to you guys. And believe me, I could talk forever when we start talking about filmmaking. So uh, anytime. Absolutely. And so our audience, you guys heard that. We're definitely going to be looking to have a returning guest in Travis someday when we have the opportunity to do that. That'll be amazing. In the meantime, is there anywhere that you would like the audience to check out your work, like follow you? I don't know if like YouTube page or if there's like um, a Twitter slash Facebook page that you want them to follow. Um, anything that you want to or if it's just kind of look out for the movies. Yeah, no, I don't you know. Uh, um, yeah, it, until I get the next movie off the ground, then uh, then I'll then I'll hit you guys up. Sounds um, good. That kind of thing. Right now, it's just trying to get that next one off the ground. Yeah. All right, stay tuned, folks. We'll we'll keep you posted on on that. All right, guys. Cool. Well, thanks thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, we'd love Absolutely. to have you on. Yeah, this thank you for taking the time out of your day. On the industry is very appreciated. I, I love uh, the way you view film. Oh man, no, thanks so much. It means a lot. Really means a lot. Uh, and it, it's it's just, it's a blast talking about the movies. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Right on. Awesome. All right, guys. It's been awesome. All right. Thank you. Thank you. That wraps up our interview with Travis Malloy. We want to thank Travis for joining us to talk about his work. And we could not do enough to encourage you, the listener, to go and check out his films. You can watch Infinity Chamber for free on Amazon Prime. And you can see Pandorum for free on Tubi or rent it on Amazon Video. And stay tuned for his future work, which I know I'm very excited for. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, I think we're all excited for it here. This was just such a fun interview. Travis is one of the best guests we've had. I know we say that every time, but it really is true. We, we just only get good guests. What can I say? And I hope you guys enjoyed listening to this as much as we enjoyed talking to Travis. Thanks for coming on, Travis. Hope you uh, get that next movie out quick so we can get you on and talk about it because I'm really looking forward to it. Yes, big thank yous from all three of us here. We really enjoyed this interview and we hope that our audience enjoyed it as well. To our audience, we will see you next week on Thursday for our bonus episode recapping Chapter 5 of The Book of Boba Fett and then again on Friday for our full episode. On our Friday episode, we have another interview where we will be joined by Brie Elrod, who stars in the new film Red Rocket, which is now showing in theaters. Stay tuned for those episodes. I'm really excited to share Bree's interview with you guys. I know that it went really well, and I think that it's a really interesting film to talk about. So it's really cool to get her insight on that. Yeah, that interview was just a fucking blast uh, to talk to Bree, especially about a movie that came out so recently and it's in theaters now. If you guys can find a theater near you, go watch it. Um, she mentioned that it'll be on streaming soon, but don't wait. Trust me, go see it now. And it'll it'll just only enhance the interview that much more. And it's just a fantastic movie. Uh, interview arguably rivals this last one you heard with Travis, but we'll just let you guys uh, wait it out and listen to it yourselves. And in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at GoodDataPod and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We're GDT everywhere you listen to podcasts, but you know that if you're listening to this. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Seriously, thank you. If you've made it all the way to this point in the podcast, seriously, thank you for listening, and please keep tuning in. We'll see you next time. Y'all are the best. Keep loving movies. Hello, and welcome to the jury room. I'm your host, Kevin, and I will be covering anything true crime, from serial killers to cold cases and everything in between. The Jury Room Podcast is available on most major podcasting platforms. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow anywhere you can. Stay safe. And thanks for listening.